The Productive Woman, Episode 250. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Well, welcome and thank you for joining me. In this episode, we're continuing our recurring productive reading series, this time talking about some key takeaways from Michael Hyatt's most recent book, Free to Focus. You'll find more information and links to things I mentioned in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 250. This episode is brought to you by Text Expander, one of my most favorite and most essential productivity tools. It's something I have installed on every one of my devices and use many, many times a day to save time. Give your productivity a boost with Text Expander. Turn the things you type often into snippets and use them everywhere you type. Your time is too valuable and life is too short to constantly retype or cut and paste things that could be a snippet. So, some examples of things that I use I have a snippet for my email addresses. In particular, my law firm email address is quite long and I frequently need to type it. Uh, So instead of having to type the whole thing, I just type the snippet I've created, which is only four characters, and they expand into the address with no typos, and I'm on my way. Another example of something I use Text Expander for regularly is the emails I send to guests with details that they need to prepare for recording. It makes sure I don't forget anything, and every guest gets consistent information. Another snippet I've created for titles for labeling files. For instance, I have recordings of mastermind meetings and coaching calls that I need to label. I want them to be labeled consistently and to include the current date in the format that I prefer that allows them to sort chronologically in my computer files. So those are just a few of the things that I use snippets for. I have tons of them uh, that save me a lot of time every day. In addition to using Text Expander for your personal productivity, companies can use Text Expander for teams for things like customer support or reports that are done regularly, certain kinds of emails, anywhere else they need consistent and accurate text across their team members. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, for Windows, for iPhone and iPad, and for Chrome. And right now, listeners of The Productive Woman can get 20% off their first year of Text Expander. I cannot recommend this tool highly enough. I used Text Expander for years before they ever became a sponsor of this podcast, and I'm delighted to share them with you. You can visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and to get that 20% off your first year. Be sure to let them know that the productive woman sent you. So again, it's textexpander.com slash podcast to get 20% off your first year of this indispensable productivity tool. All right, so now let's get into our conversation about 
Michael Hyatt's book. We're continuing, as I said, our productive reading recurring series. In the past, we've talked about lessons I learned from Gary Keller's book, The One Thing, in episode 133. Episode 147 covered lessons I had learned and key takeaways from The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Episode 166, I talked about three of the books Brene Brown has written and the lessons I've learned, key takeaways from those three books. Episode 182 focused on Courtney Carver's book, Soulful Simplicity. And episode 211 was The Free Time Formula by Jeff Sanders. So those are all excellent books that I recommend that I've read in many cases more than once. This time we are talking about Free to Focus by Michael Hyatt. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to sharing with you that book. So who is Michael Hyatt? Well, from the back cover copy, uh, it says he's the CEO of Michael Hyatt and Company, a leadership development firm with certain specialties. He's also the former chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, a major book publisher. He is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author of several books, all of which are good and all of which are relevant to productivity and making a life that matters, including his book called Living Forward, another one called Your Best Year Ever, and a book called Platform. He and his wife live in the Nashville, Tennessee area here in the United States, and they have five grown daughters. And you can learn a lot more about Michael and what he's done and what he's doing all at michaelhyatt.com. And I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. But beyond his his official biography, Michael Hyatt also happens to be the person who introduced me to podcasts. Uh, years and years ago, long before I, I launched The Productive Woman, uh, I followed his blog. He had a very popular blog that covered topics about writing, about productivity, and about leadership. And I followed it pretty closely. I read every time he had a new post come out, I would read it. Well, in one of his posts, he announced that he was launching a podcast. And honestly, I didn't really know what podcasts were when I first heard about it. But I thought, well, I like his blog. So this podcast thing, I'll want to check that out too. I started listening to his podcast. And from his podcast, I learned about others. I was introduced to people like um, Eric Fisher and other podcasters that I started following. And from that, the productive woman eventually was born. So I have a special place in my heart for Michael Hyatt, uh, not the least of which reason is the great material he puts out. So this book came out in the last few months, free to focus is what it's called. And he opens up the book as a lot of folks do talking about why the book is important, why it's necessary. He talks a lot about the value of focus, why it matters, what difference it makes, and how hard it is to come by these days. And I think we can all agree that it's hard to focus. There's so much coming at us all the time that focus becomes a rare commodity and a hard discipline to 
exercise. One of the things he says early on in the book is the idea that, uh, and I'm quoting here, focusing on everything means focusing on nothing. It's almost impossible to accomplish anything significant when you're racing through an endless litany of tasks and emergencies. And yet this is how many of us spend our days, weeks, months, years, sometimes our entire lives. And I could not agree more. And I thought it was, you know, that his first sentence in that quote was something that really caught my attention and made me pause. The idea that focusing on everything means focusing on nothing. If you are just trying to do everything and see everything and pay attention to everything, you're not really focusing on anything. Michael talks in the early part of the book about the distraction economy and how so much goes on in the world. There's so many different media coming at us and different ideas and different sources of information that's creating this distraction economy. And it's making it harder and harder for us to focus because there's just so much coming at us all the time. He says, in a world where information is freely available, focus becomes one of the most valuable commodities in the workplace. But for most of us, work is the hardest place to find it. So he's talking early on in the book about focus in the workplace and whatever your workplace is, whether it's in corporate America, a business you run yourself, or just running your own home. It's so true that information is available everywhere from lots of different sources, focus becomes very, very valuable, but it's hard to find it in our work. Uh, He goes on to say, our devices, apps, and tools make us think we're saving time being hyperproductive. But in reality, most of us just jam our day with the buzz and grind of low value activity. We don't invest our time in big and important projects. Instead, we're tyrannized by tiny tasks. I wondered how you react to that statement. If you feel the same way I do, I thought, yes, that's exactly what it feels like. The tyranny of tiny tasks of all these little things that have to get done. And all of this results in us being less productive, all the information coming at us, all the devices pinging us and dinging at us and and giving us alerts, we're actually becoming less productive if that is what our days are like. And as he points out, um, and here I'm quoting again, he says, the dollar value on lost productivity does matter. And let me interject that there are lots of statistics, lots of studies that have been done about the uh, loss in productivity and what it costs business um, when employees are less productive and they are less productive because they are less focused, less able to pay attention to things that need attention. So it's costing us as a society and business in particular money because of this lost productivity. So back to his quote, he says, the dollar value on lost productivity does matter, but it's not what really hurts. It's all the dreams left unexplored, the talents left untried, the goals left unpursued. 
you know, I, and, and I would pause and, and ask you, does that resonate with you the way it did with me? Are there dreams you're not exploring because your days are so full? Are there goals you're not pursuing because you feel like you just don't have time to focus your time and your energy and attention on those things? That's the cost of lost productivity of this inability to stay focused on what matters most. And as Michael also says that, uh, and here's another quote from the book, he says, between the projects we want to accomplish and the deluge of other activity, some of which is legitimately important and some of which only masquerades as such, we're left feeling drained, disoriented, and overwhelmed. I know I've been there. Uh, I still get there from time to time. And I loved his point kind of in the middle of that about, all this other activity that we're doing, some of it is legitimately important, but as he says, some of it only masquerades as important. And it's it, what is important is for us to figure out the distinction between what's truly important, what really matters, and what only seems to matter in the moment. So that's some of the backdrop for why he wrote this book, why it's important for us to read it or to think about these things. And then a lot of the book goes into his approach for improving our focus, for creating, as he puts it, the freedom to focus on what really matters. And so in the book, he talks about his approach, which is basically a three-phase approach to productivity to becoming more focused. And his phases are stop, cut, and act. And then each of those is further broken down into kind of three areas of attention. So I want to talk briefly about each of those phases, but I'm going to spend most of my time on the, his, the act phase, because that was really where I found a lot of great stuff that really spoke to me as I was reading through the book. And so the, again, the three phases of trying to get a handle on your, your life and your productivity and your time and your ability to focus are to stop. Second is to cut. And the third is to act. So the stop phase, uh, he breaks that down into uh, kind of three areas. First that you formulate, then you evaluate and you rejuvenate. But, and I'm not going to go into all of those, but the idea of, of stop and being the first phase of this or the first step in it is it's about taking the time to ask why you want to be productive, what you want to gain from it. And it, it, I think it's so important. We've talked on this show before about how important it is to first of all, become aware, to be conscious about what we're doing and intentional about it. And so I love that he starts with telling us, okay, just stop for a minute. That seems counterintuitive because when you've got a lot going on and you feel like you're losing control of it, you, the, the inclination is just to keep going, go, 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 go. I can't slow down because I got too much to do. If I stop, I'm not going to get it all done. But, but as he says, and I think he's so right, the first step is to stop and, and take a step back 
and ask, why do you want to be productive? What do you want to gain from it? Where are you trying to head? As he says in the book, running faster doesn't help if you're pointed in the wrong direction. And he also says, true productivity starts with being clear on what we truly want. And I could not agree more. It's it's not about activity. It's not about getting efficient at activity. It's about doing the right things. It's about figuring out what are the right things, the things that I need to be doing right now and in the future to get where I want to go. And if I haven't taken the time to think about where is it I want to end up, then all the activity in the world is not going to be productive because true productivity starts The first step is being clear on what we truly want. Where do you want to go? What kind of life do you want to create for yourself and the people that you love? What kind of person do you want to be? That's where it starts. And to to figure that out, we've got to stop the activity for some period of time and think about those things. And so in the context of figuring out activities and, and evaluating opportunities that are put to us and getting more productive, he says, and I thought this was so good. The important question is not, can I do this job faster, easier, and cheaper? It's, should I be doing this job at all? So, uh, you know, we can read all kinds of things or listen to things and watch YouTube videos on how to do things more efficiently and how to be uh, quicker about getting it done and getting more done in time in a certain amount of time because I'm doing everything more efficiently. But that doesn't answer the first question, which is, should I be doing this? Being efficient at something that shouldn't be done at all is not productive. So I love that that's... uh, his first step, again, about taking time to ask, why am I doing this? Where, where am I trying to get to? And why do I want to get there? And is what I'm doing now going to point me in the right direction? Um, The other thing I thought was good under this category or this phase of stop is he ends with the idea of rejuvenate, the importance of resting, because a life of just go, go, go is simply not sustainable over the long haul. When I was younger, I could go, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, even maybe and get very little sleep and just go, 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 always getting things done, going places, doing things. Uh, The older I get, the less I'm capable of doing that. Because the life back then when I was younger is I do that for a period of time and then I'd have a crash. I'd either, you know, get sick, get a cold or just sleep for a day to recover from the strain of that kind of life. Uh, rest is necessary. It becomes more necessary as I get older. And so I have to be more strategic and more intentional about the things I'm doing instead of just trying to be efficient and filling up all my time with stuff. As Michael puts it in the book, we aren't robots. We need time off. We need rest, time with family, leisure, play, and exercise. We need big chunks of time when we aren't thinking about work at all, when it's not even on our radar. Sometimes, though, the relentless pursuit of success keeps us always on, always engaged, and always available. 
Yes, success is a powerful motivator, but only if you understand what success truly means to you. Uh, And I think that is so important to take that step back and think about what does it mean to me to be successful? Is it, you know, making X dollars a year? Okay, well, that's going to result in one approach to life and planning and, and productivity. Is it is success evaluated on the basis of certain relationships? That's going to be a different direction with what I do with my time, energy, and attention. But if we don't know what success is to us, we're not going to know if we've achieved it. It's not going to be able to motivate us very well. And in order to think about those things and really process all of that, we've got to have time away from work he puts it, not even thinking about it. That is really hard for me. I'm going to confess as a lawyer in the kind of firm that I practice law in, I, my work is always with me and I have to be very, very intentional about putting work aside to let my mind rest and to rejuvenate, as he puts it, in other ways. Another thing he said that I think is really important is having that time to rest and rejuvenate contributes not only to our success, our ability to define and then pursue success, but in our creativity and all those other things. He says, our brains aren't designed to run nonstop. When we drop things into neutral, ideas flow on their own, memories sort themselves out, and we give ourselves a chance to rest. Creativity, he says, depends on times of disengagement, which means doing nothing from time to time is a competitive advantage. So, you know, we get best ideas sometimes when we go for a walk and we're not thinking about our work at all or in the shower. And all of that is, you know, tied to this whole idea that our brains need to disengage sometimes and just sort of wander. He talks about the importance of unplugging as part of that rest and rejuvenation. He says, our always on culture actually undermines our productivity. It also undermines our joy. When you can't go anywhere without being plugged in to your devices, and I'm pointing a finger at myself here, it undermines your productivity in the, in the long run. It also undermines your joy. You can't enjoy life if you're not experiencing life because you're head down looking at your phone. Laura. And, and I say that to you as well. So I love this idea of the importance to stop, uh, to think about why we're doing the things we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish with it, and to make time to rejuvenate, to rest, to interact with the people we love and those sorts of things. So that's phase one, step one of Michael's approach that he goes into much more depth in the book. His second phase, second step is to cut. And the kind of sub steps of that are eliminate, automate, and delegate. And I think it's important that the eliminate is the first step. There is no value in learning how to automate or delegate things that don't need to be done in the first place, right? And so eliminating things that aren't accomplishing your goals is the very first step of this cut phase. 
And Michael says, true productivity isn't about squeezing more things into your packed schedule. It's about doing the right things. And that means cutting away the non-essentials is essential. By cutting away the non-essentials, you create space for the things that really matter to flourish. I love that so much. By cutting away the non-essentials, you create space for the things that really matter to flourish. If the things that matter most to you are not flourishing in your life, maybe it's time to stop, as we talked about, evaluate, and start to eliminate the things that aren't truly essential. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Uh, In terms of eliminating things, Michael says, few things will energize you and your productivity more than the powerful little word, no. And you know, we've talked about this on the show. For a lot of us saying no is hard for a whole lot of reasons. We don't like to disappoint people. We don't want to miss out on an opportunity. So we just keep taking on more and more and more filling up our days uh, because we don't like to say no. But as Michael points out in the book, he says, the truth is, even if we hate saying no, we're unknowingly saying no all the time every time we say yes. Uh, and, and he's right there because time is finite. Energy is finite. Attention, focus is finite. And because of that, he says, we must make choices. And these choices are often not between something good and something bad, but between competing opportunities that are good, better, and best. And that's the hard part, isn't it? That's where it gets hard. Now, it, it, it can be pretty easy to choose between a great opportunity and a sucky one. Not so easy when you've got two or three different options, all of which could be great. So he goes into much more depth in the book on this stage of cut. Uh, but I thought those were some of my key takeaways that I thought were really really made me think, really made me ponder kind of uh, whether what I'm doing is essential or is it non-essential and crowding out the important things. So you stop, then you cut. And then the third stage of this, this third phase is to act. And uh, the subcategories of act or the substages of act are consolidate, designate and activate. Uh, and I, I really got a lot out of this stage, a lot of really practical stuff. I mean, there's great stuff in the other sections of the book as well. But in this section on taking action, there were a, a ton of really great uh, ideas and practical tools that you can put into use. One of the things he said there that I thought was really good is, Starting is half the battle. So identify next steps that will give you a quick sense of momentum. And it's very true that uh, whatever project we have, whatever task we have, getting started is usually the hardest part. So if we can get started, we're halfway there. And so a lot of the the processes he talks about here are helping us identify what's the next step and where do I put it? When am I going to take that next step? So he talks a lot about mega batching and we've talked in on the show about batching tasks and batch scheduling things. And that's really just doing similar activities together. 
So you save time because you're not having to set up and tear down, so to speak, more than once, but you get yourself set up and you get in that flow. And so that can be something as simple as consolidating, replying to emails to one time of day or batching your errands. So you're not running out several times a day or several times a week even, but you do get all your errands run while you're in that area of town and get it all done. And so you don't have to spend time you know, loading up the car and driving around town multiple times a day or week. And so mega batching is his approach to that really, really thinking about what steps are involved in the things you need to do, and which ones can be batched together into really focused attention. For me, I I try to batch recording podcast episodes. So I'll get several planned and outlined. And then then I only have to get my recording gear out once and can get two or three episodes recorded back to back and then put the gear away. And I don't have to think about that for another week or two weeks, depending on how many I have kind of in the queue. So batching, I think is a great tool. He has some great ideas in the book about that. And I uh, commend you to that section to to get more thoughts on how to do that. Another tool he talks about or technique is planning your ideal week. And I've seen other, uh, he's written about this before. And I love this idea that the idea is that you take kind of a blank template for a week, broken down by hours, and you plan out what would be your ideal week and combining that with mega batching. Maybe you have one afternoon set aside for running all your errands and uh, two days that you're in the office just doing deep work with no appointments and no uh, conference calls, that sort of thing. And you try to put all your conference calls on two other days so that you have some time set aside to be able to really dig in deep and focus on certain kinds of work. Planning your ideal week is just about doing that on a weekly basis. And he he's quick to say, you know, you, it's not, you may not live that week all the time, but having a plan in place is a a good place to start from and to get back to when you get off track. One of the things he says, uh, acknowledges this, he says, you can't plan for everything. Things happen that you can't anticipate, but it is a whole lot easier to accomplish what matters most when you are proactive and begin with the end in mind. He refers to the ideal week plan as being like a financial budget. You are budgeting your time ahead of time, allocating it to the things that are important to you. And that what your ideal week looks like may change from one season to the next. Uh, Your ideal week when the kids are home for the summer as is the case here in the United States, as I'm recording this, may be different from your ideal week when they are away at school during the day. So that's one example of how you may need to tweak your ideal week plan from time to time. But thinking about it as a a budget for your time is a, a great analogy because it's, it's, 
thinking ahead, being intentional about what you're doing with your time, and then you flex as you need to. And as he creates his ideal week, he allocates chunks of time to certain themes uh, each day. So a chunk of time in the morning is self, the midday middle of the day is work. And maybe the evenings and the weekends are for rejuvenation. Those are some of the themes he uses in his plan. And I should say that he in the book, one of the things I love about the book is he has lots of practical exercises at the end of each chapter. And he has uh, links, URLs in the book where you can go to his website and get templates. So he has a template for planning your ideal week, for instance, and a lot of other tools that you can download from his website. So planning your ideal week is, I think, a great tool, something that I've got on my list to work on this week, knowing that, you know, I'm not going to live that ideal week every week, but at least having that as a goal, as a target, helps me be more intentional about what I'm doing with my time and to think more carefully about what I'm going to do if something throws a monkey wrench into the work, so to speak. Another thing he talks about is the weekly preview. And he does that in conjunction with, you know, he's got his ideal week, but then he looks forward to planning the specific week and what's going to go where. And he has this weekly preview process. He does it Sunday afternoons, but he talks about finding a time that works best for you. And it's basically six steps that he outlines in the book. One of the things he says in the beginning of this chapter is you can design your week to keep visibility on your major tasks and review your progress as you go. The trick is to break down your major goals and initiatives into manageable next steps. Remember, we talked about that before. The way you get momentum is knowing what the next step is going to be and then taking it. He goes on to say, then you can map those next steps onto your week by identifying three outcomes you need to hit to make the progress you want. So he talks about his weekly big three, and then later he talks about the daily big three. So he's really, as others have talked about, is really big on the idea of just have three main outcomes for the week that if you can accomplish those, you will feel like you've made progress on the things that matter most to you. He also recommends that this weekly preview process is something that you schedule as a weekly appointment. He recommends 30 minutes at first. And like I said, he does his Sunday afternoon, evening, but you can do it whenever it works for you. And he says, when you get good at this, uh, over time, you can get it to down to where you can accomplish your weekly preview in maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And so the six steps that you follow in his program, and again, he, in the book, he goes into much more detail about this. The first step is to list your biggest wins from the past week. And that the idea there is to start with some gratitude, start with some acknowledging that, hey, I did some things. Maybe the week didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, but go looking for what, what are some of your biggest wins. The second step is to review the prior week. And you ask yourself basically three questions. How far did you get on your major tasks? What worked and what didn't? And third question, what will you keep, improve, start, or stop doing based on what you just identified? So as you look at how much progress did you make on your major tasks, your major goals, what worked and what didn't, 
and look at those things and then decide going forward, what are you going to keep, what processes, what tools, what approaches, what scheduling, whatever, what are you going to keep? What are you going to improve? What are you going to start doing differently or stop doing based on what you just identified in terms of your progress last week? So that's step two. Step three is to review your lists and your notes, whatever, wherever you keep your task list, notes from meetings, identifying things that you want to remember, things you want to take action on. Step four is to check your goals, your projects, your events, your meetings, and your upcoming deadlines. So looking at your calendar and your, your goals list and all of that. And what you've gotten from these first four steps, then step five is to designate your weekly big three, which he defines as the three most important things you need to accomplish in the coming week to keep making progress on your major goals and projects. So the first four steps are really about kind of a review, looking at the past week, looking at the notes you've taken, things you've identified you wanted to do something about taking another look at your goals and the projects you have in mind, events you have coming up, meetings and deadlines. And then from all that information, you identify and write down your weekly big three, those three most important things you need to accomplish in the coming week. Notice it's not your weekly big 20. It's not the longest list you can come up with and everything, but you've, you've looked at everything and you've taken the time to think about, all right, of all the things I can do this week, what are the three things I really want to get accomplished to move me forward on my most important goals and projects? And then the sixth step is to plan your rejuvenation. Basically, this is going back to the, the earlier steps and actually calendaring, marking into your week when and how and what you will do in terms of sleep, uh, what you eat, movement or exercise, connecting with other people, play, reflecting and unplugging. When and where are you going to do those things? How are you going to rejuvenate yourself? So that's part of the process. It's not just coming up with a list of to-dos, but also making sure that your week reflects uh, time for rejuvenation. So I thought that was really good. As I mentioned in the book, um, he's got practical exercises at the end of each chapter, uh, things that you can actually do. And I encourage you to take those, uh, do those exercises and use the links from his website to get the forms and templates you can download to do those steps. And so the, the three phases again are stop, cut and act. And every chapter within each of those phases has these exercises that you can take that really help you consolidate what you're learning here and become um, more, um, you know, more adept at doing these things. Another thing in, that he talked about, and I think this was in the act se section of the book, uh, it might have been in the, the, uh, now, actually, it might have been in the cut section, because this is really about identifying where you should be spending your time and energy and attention. Uh, and the concept he talks about here is the four zones of productivity. Um, and, and these are basically, he has a, a graphic in the book that shows quadrants four quadrants based on your level of passion and your proficiency or how good you are at something. And the four, uh, 
zones that he talks about throughout the book, when he kind of describes them and defines them. First of all, there's zone four, which he calls the drudgery zone. And those are things you're doing that you have no passion for and are not proficient at. And not surprisingly, he doesn't think you should be spending a whole lot of time on those things. Zone three is the disinterest zone. These are things that you're proficient at, but have no passion for. So you can do it, but you don't really care. You're not interested in it. Zone two is the distraction zone. This is things you're passionate about, but are not proficient at. So you, you know, you can waste a lot of time there trying to do things that, because you really feel strongly about it, but you're not very good at it. Um, And then zone one is the desire zone. And this is those things that you're both passionate about and proficient at. So you're, you care deeply about it and you're good at it. And he says, that's where we need to be spending most of our time. And I can't disagree with him. Uh, And interestingly, he says this about the desire zone. He says, the more time you spend in your desire zone, the more good you do, not only for yourself, but also the world around you. All of us possess unique gifts and we are never more effective, never more powerful, never more influential than when we are exercising those gifts. I I love that. I think that's so important to remember that when we are exercising our unique gifts, we are able to make more of a contribution to the world around us and will be more satisfied. He goes on to say, you can't be me and I can't be you. However, we can all be the best version of ourselves. I believe that happens when we live and work in our desire zone. Again, I can't disagree with him. The more we can spend our time doing things in our desire zone, uh, the more effective we're going to be, the more Uh, at peace we're going to be, and the more of a contribution we're going to make. And as he puts it, true productivity is about doing more of what is in your desire zone and less of everything else. Maximizing our ability to make a positive impact by focusing on those things that we are both passionate about, that we've been, you know, we've got this drive to do, but we're also good at it. He he does talk about an, a fifth zone, zone X kind of doesn't has it floats around, and that's the development zone. These are things that are outside your desire zone, but might be moving toward it because it, maybe it's something that you're very passionate about, not very good at, but you're you're willing to work on getting more proficient at it. So it could eventually move into the desire zone. So that was kind of an interesting twist on the zones and making a place for things that, you know, maybe aren't in your desire zone yet, but could get there uh, with time and with a little effort. He also talks about some of the obstacles to operating more in our desire zone and less everywhere else. And he talks about, uh, in particular, limiting beliefs for which he lists several limiting beliefs. And for each of those, he offers what he calls a liberating truth to counter that limiting belief. And so briefly, uh, and he has a lot more background for this and a lot of really thought provoking information and ideas about each of these. But just very briefly, the first limiting belief that prevents us from operating more in our desire zone and spending less time in those other zones uh, is I just don't have enough time. 
and he he goes into a lot of of reasons why that's a limiting belief that may not be true and the liberating truth he offers to counter that is i have all the time i need to accomplish what matters most and if we can start to believe that and act on that uh, we can make the time we need to accomplish what matters most by all the steps we talked about, he talked about earlier in the book, and we've talked about earlier tonight, cutting out the non-essentials and making room for what is essential. So instead of believing I don't have enough time, I can start to believe I have all the time I need to accomplish what matters most. The second limiting belief is I'm just not that disciplined. And his counter to that is working in my desire zone doesn't require much discipline. If you're talking about things, you know, the desire zone being those things that we are passionate about and very good at, I, I kind of agree with them. It doesn't take a lot of discipline to do, to spend time on those things that we're good at uh, and that we're passionate about. And he says, if you design your life so that you spend most of your time working on things you're passionate about and proficient at, the discipline to do those things comes easily. And I tend to agree. I think maybe the discipline we need is to set aside those other things, to say no to the less, the non-essentials so that we have the time to do the things that we're passionate about and good at and to make our best contribution. So just a thought. Uh, the third limiting belief, he says, that keeps us out of the desire zone and spending more time in those other areas is, I'm not really in control of my time. And it's true that, you know, if you're not a, a business owner who's single and has no children, your time isn't entirely under your control because you have made commitments to other people, maybe to a job and and where other people people controls a lot of your time and they have set expectations for you. But that doesn't mean you have no control. And the, the liberating truth he offers to counter that is, I have the ability to make better use of the time I do control. And I agree with him 100%. I think it's easy to just say, well, you know, I have a job, my boss tells me what to do with my time, I have a husband and kids, other people control what I do with my time, and not recognize that there are at least pockets of time we do have control over, and we can choose to make better use of those times. As Michael says in the book, you are not a passive object floating through life completely at the mercy of outside forces. You have a say in how you live your own life. And that is true. And we need to all start believing that. I think it's, it's, it's also true that the life we're living today is the result of choices we've made in the past. So if you're not living the life you want, you can change it by making different choices. I can too. If I'm not happy with the life I have today, I can look at the choices I made that got me to this point and choose differently. There's a Jim Rohn quote that I thought was so good. I shared it in the Productive Woman Community Facebook group on one of our Motivation Monday uh, quotes. And he says, you cannot change your destination overnight, but you can change your direction overnight. And uh, I think that's very true. We can make a choice today 
it's not going to change where we are, but we can change where we're headed if we change our direction right now. Uh, the uh, limiting belief number four is that highly productive people are just born that way. And he, he gives all sorts of evidence for why that's simply not true. The liberating truth he offers to counter that is productivity is a skill I can develop. And that's very true. We can develop it. Number five is I tried before and it didn't work. Okay, maybe maybe that happened. And, uh, and the belief is that it'll never work because it didn't work before. The liberating truth he offers to counter that limiting belief is I can get better results by trying a different approach. And he goes on to say uh, something important for us to keep in mind. High achievers never give up simply because one solution failed. Instead, they keep looking for what will work and they don't stop until they find it. And we can all be that persistent. If we've tried a technique or tried an approach and it didn't work, okay, well, try something different. Keep going instead of just giving up and saying nothing's going to work. Number six uh, is my circumstances won't allow it right now, but they're only temporary. Um, I, I This is a limiting belief. We think because of my situation right now, I can't I can't be more productive. I can't do the things in my desire zone because of this situation, but it's only temporary. Things will get better when X happens and then it'll be different. But as he points out, what is temporary will eventually become permanent unless we change something now. Um, and he also says, and I think this is so true, it is up to you to define what you want normal to look like. If you do not take control of your time, someone else will. And so the, the liberating truth he offers to counter that particular limiting belief is, I don't have to wait until my circumstances change to get started and make progress. We can start today. We may not be able to change our circumstances immediately, but we can change something. We can change something that's in our control, do something to get started on whatever that goal is we have in mind and make progress. Even if it's slow, it's better than no progress. Uh, he says in the book, if you wait for the perfect time to become more productive and pursue the freedom you crave, you'll be waiting forever. You can start making positive changes right now, regardless of your circumstances. And I thought that was so good. Um, his seventh uh, limiting belief is uh, that he hears from a lot of his clients is where these came from. I'm not good with technology. And the, the, we can talk about that, but the, the liberating truth he offers to counter that belief is just for us to start to believe true productivity doesn't require complex technology or systems. It's more about aligning my daily activities with my priorities. And I can do that. Uh, and I agree, we can do that. Being productive isn't about mastering technology or certain systems or a certain approach. It's about learning to align what I'm doing each day with what matters most to me. And we can all do that. We can take some action in that regard. 
couple other thoughts that um, just he he shared in the book, a couple quotes that really spoke to me that I made a note of. One of them is for real productivity, we have to prioritize people. Many of the best things in life happen in the spaces between our tasks, in the intentional moments set aside for other people. And I really think that's important for us to keep in mind. I've said before, and I truly believe this, a life that matters almost always matters in relation to other people. Keeping people in mind, uh, the people we care about, the people we want to serve, the people we want to help, uh, the people who love us and that we love. Uh, the, if we don't keep them in mind, no matter how much we're doing, we're not really being productive. And finally, uh, a last thought I wanted to share from the book that really spoke to me. He says, it's completely up to you. No one else can or should tell you what matters most to you. Once you figure it out, hold on to that why for dear life. It will be the star that guides your ship through this exciting voyage. Without it, you'll get lost. That's what productivity gives you, the freedom to choose what you want to focus your time and energy on. And I, that could not be more true. It is up to us to decide what matters most, each of us, to us. And that becomes our why, why we want to be productive, why we set the goals we do. And, and as he says, once you figure out what matters most to you, hold on to that why for dear life. So, you know, couple final thoughts. There is so much more to this book than I've summarized here. There is, for instance, a great section on really practical tips for saying no gracefully and why it's important that we learn to do so. There's another chapter on dealing with interruptions and distractions and some really excellent tactics for maintaining focus. I encourage you to read this book. See if the approach he describes will help you get better at focusing your time, your energy, your attention on what matters most to you so you can get the results you want and make a life that matters as you define it. So I think it's a great book. Uh, I would love to know what you think. Have you read Free to Focus? If so, what spoke to you most strongly? Uh, I'd love to have a conversation about this. You can share your ideas, your questions in the comments section of the show notes for this episode, which you will find at theproductivewoman.com slash 250. Or you can post a comment or question on the Productive Woman Facebook page. Or if you're a woman who listens to the show and you're a member of the community Facebook group, that's a great place to have these conversations. As always, if you'd prefer to share your thoughts with me privately, I welcome your emails. You can send your questions, comments, or suggestions, your thoughts on the book, or whatever else you'd like to talk with me about. Email those to me at feedback at theproductivewoman.com. And I would love to hear from you. Uh, I want to say a special thank you to someone who recently left a nice review of the podcast in iTunes. You can do that by going to theproductivewoman.com slash iTunes, and that will show you where you can uh, leave a review. And so Patricia from the United Kingdom sent this lovely message. She says, I stumbled upon this podcast whilst looking for productivity tips and motivation. I became a listener in January and I cannot emphasize how helpful Laura's 
guidance was. To be more specific, I was in the middle of writing my master's dissertation while also working. I felt overwhelmed by the amount of research, writing, editing, and proofreading I had to do. The podcast has armed me with the tools and mentality not only to be more productive, but more efficient also. As a result of good organization and time management, I have finished my dissertation three weeks earlier than the deadline, and I have been awarded a distinction, which she says is the highest mark in the UK. I cannot recommend and praise this podcast enough. Definitely worth listening. Well, thank you, Patricia, and congratulations on completing your dissertation. Um, Send me an email and tell me what it was about. I'd love to hear about it. And thank you to you for taking the time to review the podcast and to everyone else who reaches out to me as well. Uh, Remember, before we go, to check out Text Expander if you're not already using that tool. It's one of the ones I find as absolutely indispensable. And you can visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Be sure to let them know the productive woman sent you and you'll get 20% off your first year. Thank you so much to Text Expander for supporting the productive woman. And that is it for this episode of The Productive Woman. As always, I thank you for spending this time with me. I hope you found something in it that is useful to you, that you can put into practice in your life. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter. (music) 